Gina has talked about the great work of Terry Lane and his team in creating this exhibition. It is nothing less than a triumph, and it reflects, and I thought I might quote Whistler, because everyone else was in the 9 by 5 exhibition, um, Terry's work um, in creating this exhibition sums up the knowledge of a lifetime. I'd also like to um, thank and acknowledge the work of our Deputy Director, Francis Lindsay. It's been a hugely complex logistical exercise. Francis has pulled it all together. She's managed a very complex process across every aspect of the operations of the NGV and, by the way, had time to write one of the catalogue essays. Um, the publication is magnificent. I hope you all get, get, get a copy of it. It really does represent the most up-to-date thinking and research um, in the areas around this group of artists, and from a, a technical perspective, I think it's the finest catalogue we've ever produced. Certainly, the quality of the colour reproductions is un, unsurpassed by anything we've done previously. And public programmes, this is just the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. There's a lot more that Gina and her colleagues um, have in store for you. So just, just watch um, as the weeks and months go by. There'll be many more things that you might wish to come along to. Now, we've called this exhibition Australian Impressionism. We believe it's well justified to give it this name, but that... In giving it this name, it probably requires some explanation because it's been common in the 20th century um, in, in art history and criticism in this country to take the cue for this title from the terminology around the 9 by 5 Impression Exhibition of 1889 to define um, the particular style of our Australian painters of that moment as Impressionist. And it's interesting, and we, I can't go into it in any detail here, these are all short papers, but if you read John Rothenstein's Study of Conda, uh, published in 1938, he certainly celebrates Tom Roberts as an impressionist. He has no hesitation in using that word, and he describes, of course, Roberts celebrates him as the artist who introduced impressionism to Australia, and then, of course, to all the other artists around him. He was uninterested, this is John Rothenstein, in a clear differentiation between what we might call mainstream French impressionism and an alternative um, style, French-inspired international plein airism. And this was a feature of a great deal of criticism um, at the end of the 19th century, not just in this country, but in the United States, um, Britain, and elsewhere. So Impressionism became loosely defined as a new style of painting, um, painting out of doors in front of the subject, rendering effects of nature with a new luminosity and an abbreviated brush technique. Bernard Smith, in his important book of 1945, Place, Taste and Tradition, had absolutely no qualms um, about uh, titling his section on this art as um, Australian Impressionism, simply arguing that the style was adapted here in Australia as elsewhere in the world to suit local conditions. It's now commonplace for the Australian plenarists, and in particular the artists who are the subject of this exhibition, to be grouped generically as the Australian Impressionists. It's even more essential now that Terry Lane has very sensibly proposed that we drop the terminology, the idea of the Heidelberg School, that um, Terry argues that this is unhelpful and historically wayward. And I have to say I completely agree with Terry. So our most, on, on, a most, um, on the most basic level, we, it, we, let's begin with two great pictures in the collection of the National Gallery of Victoria. This one, um, Monet's Veteuil, his masterpiece of the late 1870s. 
This is an unsurpassed example of what we might call um, the high French Impressionist landscape style and technique with this fractured brushwork, complex layering of colours that are quite often um, very pure, um, obviously highly experimental for the time, and Arthur Streeton's The Purple Noon's Transparent might our NGV masterpiece of Australian Impressionism, more thinly painted, more realistic in approach to the subject, with a sense of drawing surviving um, as a very important stylistic element. And, you know, on, 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 on a first viewing, you, would, you might argue that stylistically these have little in common. There are things, of course, in terms of general approach, the system of ideas that draw them together, but they're very different stylistically. And there's little evidence surviving to suggest that the Melbourne group of painters were familiar with the work of the mainstream French Impressionists, or indeed, even if they had been, that they would have been particularly interested in their radical chromatic experiments. But it's also notable that both John Russell, um, writing from Berlier, and Charles Conder, writing from Paris, wrote a series of letters to Tom Roberts in 1890 and 1891 and about what was happening in Paris, and both of them went out of their way in these letters to mention Monet and Impressionism. Now, the letters of John Russell are particularly interesting, and they've been published by Anne Galbery, and I do acknowledge Anne Galbery's um, important contribution, of course, to the study of John Russell. And here, just to remind you, is one of his burial landscapes, stormy landscapes, of the very end of the 1890s or around 1900. Now, if we adopt a very strict definition of Impressionism as being the style associated with a particular group of artists who exhibited in the eight Impressionist exhibitions between 1874 and 1886, then we might argue that John Russell is perhaps the only Australian we could see as participating in the Impressionist movement. He knew Monet, he understood, and of course Van Gogh, he understood his ideas and technical approaches and at times imitated him in a fairly direct way. Russell wrote to Roberts in Melbourne, and I'm now quoting him, did you see the Manet, not Monet, in this case Manet show at the Beaux-Arts? I unhesitatingly place him as the most original painter of our century. Now the rather casual way in which the name of Manet was introduced in this letter suggests to me that no explanation was needed, which reinforces the idea that perhaps Roberts did indeed see Manet's work in Paris and understood his approach. This wonderful little um, nine by five, this little Arthur Streeton, it when I first saw it, I thought, gosh, that's Manet-like, isn't it? If you saw a little sketch like that reproduced in a book on Manet about his work of the late 1860s or 70s, you might even think it were a Manet. I'm not, that's just a visual aside, by the way. I'm, I'm making no art historical claim whatsoever. Um, I suspect that Streeton had never seen a Manet, knew nothing about his style, although perhaps Roberts might have talked about um, that kind of experience. John Russell then went on in his letter to talk about seeing new work by Degas and Monet, by Whistler, by Pizarro, Gauguin, and others. And he describes the younger artists who um, had revolted from the rule, as he put it, of the academic master Comment. He then makes a critically important statement, which goes right to the heart of understanding the context of the 9 by 5 exhibition of the previous year, of 1889, about which he had obviously heard. And, and I'm now quoting John Russell to Roberts. As understood here, and that means in Paris thereby implying it was understood differently in Melbourne. I'll go back. As understood here, Impressionism consists not of hasty sketches, such as what you see on the screen, but in finished work in which the purity of colour and intention is kept. Monet, for example, will put 10 or 12 sittings on a canvas. 
What then is the origin of the abbreviated impressionistic style adopted by Melbourne's young avant-garde from the mid-1880s um, if it's not the mainstream French impressionists, which, of course, um, Russell is reminding Roberts? Well, in Paris and London, uh, Roberts would have been open to new ideas about plain airism, about painting freshly and rapidly out of doors, and he readily appropriated what he liked and observed. And I'm now going to give you a very rapid look, and we're going to race through lots of slides, and I'm not, I'm not going to say much about um, any of them, just to give you a sense of what I think were some of the stylistic sources, French and English, um, which influenced Roberts, or at least established the context in which Roberts developed his ideas about painting en plein air when he was in Europe um, as, a, as a young student um, in the early 1880s. So here we go. Well, we've cleaned this work, of course, coming south, one of my very favourite pictures of 1886, the experience of Roberts returning to Melbourne. And here is a detail of those figures, which you can read now far better than before, um, in the bottom right. And I immediately think of um, Degas in many ways. I think this work has quite a Degas-like quality. But perhaps an artist who had something in common with Degas, he was immensely fashionable um, in the early to mid-1880s, but who was a kind of halfway house, not as radical um, as Degas, and that is Jean Béraud. And this is um, the Paris Patisserie, a work of uh, just a couple of years later, in fact. But this star was well established by Beryl um, by the mid-80s, early to mid-80s, when Roberts would have seen it. But the most important influence, and this is picked up by a number of the authors of the essays in the catalogue, and it's fairly obvious when you think about it, was the, great, the greatest of all the um, plain airists, this new generation of plain airists working in a realistic manner, uh, Jules Bastien Lepage. And this is his masterpiece, Les Foins, um, of 1878. He died in 1884, very young, in his 30s. And so there was an, a kind of heroic quality to Bastien Lepage. And he was the most fashionable, the most imitated um, of the new generation of artists in Paris. This is in the Musée d'Orsay. But he always described himself as a realist. And the, uh, one of his British followers, George Corson, published an article a couple of years after his death in which he wrote about the influence of Bastien Lepage and the new French realism on English plein air painters of the time. So that sets it in detail. But look at little details like this um, of the foliage um, of the Bastien Lepage style. And I think you begin to think of some of those um, works of the mid-80s in the current exhibition, and you get a sense that there is a similar taste, um, there is a kind of overlap. Now, we happen to have in Melbourne one of the greatest of all of Bastien Lepage's paintings, one of his unparalleled masterpieces, uh, October, the Potato Gatherers of 1878, the same year as the one in the Musée d'Orsay. It's currently in Paris, in the big Bastien Lepage exhibition, and the French so admire the Melbourne picture, it's on the cover of the catalogue and on banners all over Paris, so we're rather pleased about that. But think of a work like Le Père Jacques of 1882, the kind of picture that Roberts might well have seen, um, this new style, and look particularly at the vertical grid, the way in so many of his pictures, Bastien Lepage uses a vertical grid of thin tree trunks um, to define um, the, the certain qualities of the surface. It's, it's rather, um, it, I think it's incipiently modern. Of course, it, it's not as modern, could never be as the, the, the Impressionist and post-Impressionist mainstream, but in its own way, you know, it contributes to that idea of modernism about suppressing deep space, and about using form and vertical and horizontal lines to really um, to emphasize qualities of the picture plane, a certain quality of flatness. Very few of Bastien Lepage's um, works have deep space, and that, that too is really quite interesting. But just think of that, about that, um, the, the, the constant use of vertical tree trunks, um, which is very important in his work. 
Pauvre Fauvet, 1881. This is a work in Glasgow, bought at the same time from the McCulloch sale as Melbourne bought the potato gatherers. And again, a little detail of the foliage. And you can see, again, perhaps certain relationships with the, the, the approach in the artists um, of the current exhibition. Pamesh, again, the, vertical, the verticality of the background is emphasised here by um, broken pieces of fence, I think, rather than, than trees, but the, the idea is still there. And lots of other artists were working um, in this manner. Dagnon Bouveret, another very young artist, um, Horses at the Watering Trough, a work of 1884. This was the, the, the great celebrated work of, of the Salon of 1884, instantly bought by the French state, and he was a young artist only in his late 20s or early 30s, and it really um, made his reputation. The other follower, um, uh, an English follower, George Corson, Repériage of 1887. Again, you can see the stylistic links, I think, with the artists um, of, the, of, of the Australian group who are the subject of this um, of, of, of of this exhibition, and again, a detail from the George Corson. I can go on forever, but just, 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 I just wanted to establish the context. Elizabeth Forbes, um, a work of 1892. We can go to Scandinavia, to Northern Europe, Garen Carrera, Boy with a Crow of 1884, which was exhibited in the, the Paris Salon. It's just possible, perhaps, that Tom Roberts saw it. I don't know. Um, another of the Newland artists working in England, Fred Hall's Kitchen Garden of the mid-1880s. And very interestingly, this wonderful work that belongs to the uh, Musée d'Orsay, one of their great plein airist works of the next generation, um, La Récolte des de Pommes de Terre, The Harvest of, um, of Potatoes, um, by José Julio de Souza Pinto. Now, he was a young Portuguese artist who became very hot because when uh, Bastien Lepage died prematurely, uh, he was seen, particularly of all the artists, um, as representing the next generation of followers um, of Bastien Lepage. And that's very important because I've never quite understood... Um, why, if I can show you the next work, in the early 1890s, when John Longstaff won the travelling scholarship from the National Gallery of Victoria, the trustees gave him quite a large sum of money, and they said, go to Paris and buy a major work by one of the really important young French painters. We want the best example of modern contemporary French art to be sent back to Melbourne. And this arrived. Now, I had always thought, who the hell is uh, de Souza Pinto? It's a very handsome picture, very attractive. Um, but why when he could have bought a Degas for the amount of money, or two Monets, or whatever. Why did John Longstaff buy this? And the, the answer is, he was the hot painter. He was really very, very famous, seen as leading the next generation, as I said, of that plain airism um, of, of, of Bastien Lepage. And the catalogue, which has only just arrived, of the Bastien Lepage exhibition in Paris, makes this very, very clear. They actually talk about de Souza Pinto as being this really important artist in the 1880s. And so I think that explains it. The other reason is that I am increasingly the view that the Melbourne-based Portuguese artist, um, Arthur Lurero, would have perhaps given Longstaff an introduction to him for when he went to Paris, because they're about the same age, both born near Lisbon, both studied in the same places, both went to Paris um, in the late 70s, early 80s, both enrolled at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, both were in the studio of Cabanel. So clearly Arthur Lurero, um, who came out to Melbourne, and um, de Souza Pinto would have known each other. It's, it's, it, there, there's no question about it when you think about the coincidence of historical fact. And then you get in Melbourne, well, these ideas being explored in Tom Roberts' The Artist Camp of 86, um, a summer morning tiff. And then, and then again, j just to remind ourselves about 
the, not only the, the um, composition of apparatus and the stylistic sort of in issues, but also the fact that so many of these artists enjoyed um, um, using subjects or developing subjects about relationships between young men and women. So a summer morning tiff um, in the Tom Roberts, and here are, are two young um, farm workers, obviously very much in love or developing some kind of relationship. And um, that, that's just a detail, by the way, from that very beautiful um, Bastien Lepage. And again, think of some of the details in the paintings in the current exhibition. And this is um, Henry Scott Tuke, one of the English New Newland School um, artists, um, the Promise, again, a work of the mid-1880s. So, boy and a girl, um, that kind of imagery is quite important, in fact, in our current exhibition. And then, of course, here we have McCubbin's Lost of 1886. And the way it's been hung in the exhibition, it's a kind of breakthrough picture, isn't it? Up until then, you can see McCubbin working through under the influence of Roberts, throwing off that kind of rather heavy-handed you know, European academic naturalism or realism that he'd been taught and doing something much fresher, much more modern. And then suddenly, with Lost, he produces this masterpiece. It's quite mind-boggling because I keep saying to myself, how did he do it? Um, yes, he had Roberts to tell him about what was happening in Europe, but how did this artist in Melbourne, who had trained at the National Gallery School, was now working there... Um, who had never seen an Impressionist painting, who'd never seen one of the great plain airist works um, of the new generation, how did he produce such an extraordinary and sophisticated work? And here, here again is a detail of um, McCubbin's Lost, and think of some of those details I've shown you of Bastien Lepage. Well, I've got some more for you here and here. So there we are. I, I think that one can begin to make these sort of general um, points and general comparisons. And then, of course, The Great Golden Summer by Arthur Streeton, um, the, the Eaglemont landscape, really celebrating um, the new Australian um, school of landscape. Again, if we just think about certain details, you can see um, roughly where all of this is coming from. Jane Sutherland's Harvest Field uh, of the 1890s, look at the details there. And Jane Sutherland uses a much heavier impasto. I know Francis is going to talk about this later. Um, and she actually feels much more impressionist um, in a kind of you know, mainstream impressionist sense and then this is one of Bastien Lepage's landscapes and a detail from it is, again, to just see how that impasto, that surface is, 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 is built up. Then, of course, we get a work like Robert's Allegro con Brio, Burke Street, um, an amazing picture, and we might compare it to the National Gallery of Victoria's Boulevard Montmartre, painting a city scene um, of the 1890s, and again, we make that general observation, well, look, in a very simple way, they have something in common, but stylistically, they are miles apart. They ab absolutely have little in common. Um, but then we get something like uh, Redfern Station, which is one of my favourite works by Arthur Streeton. And again, I ask the same question I asked with um, the, the Fred McCubbin. How did Streeton do it? This is an incredibly sophisticated painting. It's absolutely beautiful. Right there in the mainstream of this sort of new European style, um, but there he was stuck in Melbourne and then Sydney, never having been to Europe, never actually having seen the work of these artists, never having access to Paris and the artist colonies that all those artists of the Newland and Glasgow schools in Britain, for example, had. It's really extraordinary. And we can compare, perhaps, that with the work of others. This is Giuseppe Dionysus, the only Italian who exhibited with the Impressionists, a work painted in London, uh, Trafalgar Square, around 1880, or um, Antoine Volant's a detail from his Pont Neuf. And you can see that there's another kind of group of artists who... In, in a stylistic sense, demonstrate a kind of compromise style. Um, it comes, thank you, how many, minute, how many minutes do I have? Is it three, thank you. Um, who who um, 
represent a kind of compromise style. We might call them small i impressionists as opposed to capital I impressionists. So it's somewhere between impressionism and plein air realism. And I think all of that is... And these pictures, of course, were less radical than the mainstream impressionists, and so they were more acceptable, I suppose, to a, to a bourgeois public um, so far as sales were concerned. Little works like this. We could, we could go on forever making comparisons with these international artists, this wonderful street from South Australia, and um, this, this, this American work, William Merritt Chase, of around about the same date. And we could take something like Condor's uh, Bronte Beach. Um, we could take, compare it to Stanhope Forbes' um, Beach Scene at St Ives, just about the same date, a year or two earlier. Or the slightly more decorative um, Wilson Steer, Children Paddling, again of the late, 18, uh, late 1880s. Um, you know, that, almost, that, that, that has something more in common, perhaps, with Condor. And then, back to the 9 by 5 exhibition, here is the portrait of Tom Roberts, and called in the catalogue an Impressionist. Um, and compare it with Stanhope Forbes, again, this Newland artist, study of a man painted painted on a little panel, a little wooden panel, and you can see that our artists in Melbourne were reflecting a kind of international style. A very obvious one would be Whistler. Now, this is interesting because 